readers and listeners, welcome to our daily devotional for June the 6th. So if you recall, our daily devotional is divided into two different segments. We have our first of the day segment, and we have our through the Bible in one year segment. So our verse for June the 6th comes out of Acts chapter 2, verse 38, which says, But Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See here the admitting and turning from sin, accepting God's forgiveness and being baptized in water are the conditions that Peter states here for receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. However, Peter's call for his readers to be baptized in water before receiving the promise of the Father must not be viewed as an absolute requirement for spiritual salvation or the infilling and the empowerment with the Spirit. You see, true repentance and faith are the conditions for receiving forgiveness and spiritual salvation. Also, baptism in the Spirit is not an automatic result of water baptism. So what do I mean by that? So we're talking about baptism in the Spirit. Right, so when you are saved, you, the Holy Spirit indwells you. He comes along, he's already there with you, he comes to dwell inside you, but you have the choice of whether or not you're going to listen to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, or you're going to ignore the promptings of the Holy Spirit. So when you are baptized in the Spirit, you are saying, I'm going to be open and listen to the big things in this passage. The first one is that in this situation, Peter did require water baptism prior to the receiving of the promise of the Spirit, because in the minds of his Jewish listeners, the custom of baptism was taken for granted being involved in any decision to turn from one's own way and follow God's way. We also see that water baptism did not precede the baptism in the Spirit in the instances recorded in Acts 9, 17 through 18, that's the Apostle Paul, and in Acts 10, 44 through 48, which would be those that were in Cornelius's house. So that's the first thing. The 
second thing to each believer after turning from his or her own sinful way and accepting Jesus Christ by faith must receive a personal baptism in the Spirit. So again, this is not a requirement for salvation, right? Because you're saved by grace through faith. So what we're talking about here is the process of sanctification, becoming more like Christ, opening yourself up to the promptings and the leadings of the Holy Spirit, and then going out and living by those promptings and those leadings of the Holy Spirit. But we do see that throughout the book of Acts, the gift of the Spirit was something that individuals consciously desired, received, and applied. So the only possible exception to the rule of the New Testament was the case of Cornelius. That was one of those that we talked about in previously. The previous point was, and that would be in Acts 10, 44-48, where we see that Cornelius had a prompting and a reading from the Holy Spirit, but was not baptized in the Spirit. So we must not consider baptism in the Spirit as a gift automatically provided to a Christian apart from a conscious desire to receive it. So in other words, it's not an automatic thing. Yes, the Holy Spirit does come to live in you. He is there to guide you, to direct you. But until you open yourself up to that, he's not you're not going to do what says that's what baptism in the spirit is all about. You're saying I'm going to follow the leadings and the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And so today, the Bible readings for June the 6th that you must do are 1 Kings chapter 1, Acts chapter 4, Psalm 124, 1-8. And Proverbs 16, verse 24. So that brings us to the conclusion of our verse of the day for June the 6th. Now we're going to move into our Through the Bible in One Year segment for June the 6th. So yesterday we finished up John chapter 12, and today we're going to move into John chapter 13, which begins the second half of John's Gospel. So by the way, if you've missed any of these segments, you can visit upstatechristian.com. Again, that's upstatechristian.com. And so we're going to be focusing today on the first 17 verses of John chapter 13, which is the second half of John's Gospel, which runs from the beginning of chapter 13 to the end of John's Gospel, which will be 
21, chapter 21, verse 25. It is often called the Book of Glory. So it's divided into three main sections. So we see we have Jesus' farewell discourse, which is chapters 13 through 17. We see Jesus' passion, that is his arrest, trial, and crucifixion, which are chapters 18 through 19. And then we see Jesus' resurrection appearances, which are chapters 20 through 21, which takes us to the very end of John's Gospel. So in this farewell discourse, Jesus spent the evening before his arrest, sharing his final teachings with his Gospels what is sometimes referred to as the Upper Room Discourse. Right, because it all takes place within the Upper Room where his disciples are gathered together to eat the Passover meal. So, so Jesus and his disciples must have spent several hours together that night and Jesus revealed to them the power of humble service by washing their feet, which foreshadowed his work on the cross. So in this same setting, he identified Jesus as betrayer, even though the disciples did not pick up on it at the time. He taught them much to their surprise that it would be better for him to depart than to remain with them. For only if he departed could he send the Holy Spirit to indwell them. So they needed to know that persecution lay in their future, but they would not face it alone. Jesus spoke of these things and more as they gathered to eat a sacred meal. This sacred meal was the Passover Seder. And as they gathered, the devil was among them, making the upper room a battlefield where a cosmic conflict was about to erupt. In the farewell discourse, which is chapters 13 through 17, concludes with Jesus' heartfelt prayer for himself, his disciples, and the future believers. And we're going to talk about each and every one of these things in depth as we go through this second half of John's Gospel. So now let's pick up in chapter 13. We're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to go through verse Five, four, right now. So here's what that says. It says, it says, It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The meal was in the progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. 
after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. So what we see here is that John begins by describing events in this upper room where everything that is in chapters 13 through 17 takes place. It begins by describing the events in the upper room on the night of Passover. If we want to believe John's account is 100% accurate. Or it was more than likely more probable that it was not necessarily the night of Passover, which would have made it Saturday night into Sunday. And we know that Jesus was crucified. Friday, so this took place on Thursday. Right, so this did take place somewhere during that night. So this would have been the time period. So you know that if this took place during the week of Passover, they would have eaten a big meal. They would have eaten the Passover Seder on Sunday. It would have been Palm Sunday when Jesus entered into Jerusalem. And then they would have eaten another meal on Thursday. So this, they would actually they would have eaten several more sacred meals over the course of the week. And so Jesus sat down with his disciples to eat this important second or fourth or fifth sacred meal with his disciples as a way to teach them and instruct them. So John does not focus on the Lord's Supper, but on Jesus' washing of his disciples' feet and on his, on, and on his extended teaching in the upper room. So what we see is that Jesus knew his time for departure had arrived. His time on earth had come to an end. His earthly ministry was complete. So we see that John does not say that Jesus was about to die, but says that Jesus was about to go to the Father. So Jesus was about ready to return to his Father. John directs our attention past the cross to Jesus' return to heaven, which was that vitally important part of what was going on here. So what we see is there is not the slightest hint of the possibility of defeat because Jesus' love and com commitment to his disciples is unquestioned. So we see twice in this chapter that the devil was at work in Judas, right? So that's that. So we just covered verses 1 through 2. That part, right? Actually, it was just verse 1, excuse me. Because now we're going to cover verses 2 through 5, which is the part that says the evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. So that's the part where we see that twice in this chapter the devil was at work in Judas. Because we're going to see when we get into the next section, which starts in chapter 18, that Jesus then predicts his betrayal by Judas and tells Judas to go and do what he's gotta go do. 
Jesus. Now we're going to pick up first. He says, Jesus knew that the Father put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and returned to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So at this sacred gathering, a cosmic conflict was being waged. And despite Jesus' knowledge that he had all authority and would soon return to his father, he washed his disciples' feet. Let's talk a little bit about that, right? So why would they be washing feet in a sacred dinner? What was so important about washing someone's feet? So because many people wore sandals and walked on dusty roads, you gotta remember, not a whole, there weren't any paved roads in the Middle East at this point in time. There were no Roman roads, truly Roman roads, in the Middle East at this point in time. All of the roads were dusty, they were dry, and when you walked on them, your feet would get dirty. And so, foot washing was a common custom to get rid of the dust and the dirt off of a person's feet when they arrived at their destination. So a good host would have provided a servant to wash his guest's feet as a sign that they were welcome in his house. However, however, if there were no servants available to wash his guest's feet, the host would not do this himself. So what we'll see is that Jesus took on a completely different attitude than what was expected of him as the host of this sacred meal. No other host would have dared to do what no other host would have dared to, um, so he got up, uh, dared got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, in other words, took off what was his outerwear, taken off his shirt and his pants, this would have been today, but it wasn't, it's not today, so it would have taken off basically his cloak. He said he wrapped a towel around his waist. So in other words, he took off his outer clothing so that he was in what would have been at that point in time the equivalent of underwear. And wrapped a towel around his waist and then says after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. So not only did he wash the feet, in other words get rid of all the dust and the dirt and the Grime that had gotten on his disciples' feet, but he then took the towel that he wrapped around his waist and he dried their feet. And we see that John here has meticulously recorded this scene. He's told us pretty much.
everything that Jesus has done in great detail. So now we're going to pick up in verse 6, and we're going to take it through verse 9, which says, He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. So what is going on there, right? So we see an exchange happening here between Peter and Jesus that reveals that foot washing had a symbolic significance beyond an act of humble service. And we also see Peter stick his foot in his mouth because you see Peter was the loud and voiceless one in this group of disciples. He was the one that acted 99.9% of the time without thinking. If the thought came into his head, he did it without thinking about what the consequences of that action might be, or whether those actions were the right actions to take at that time. So we see that Peter's resistance to Jesus' action was met by an even stronger statement from Jesus. As you see, foot washing symbolized the cleansing that would take place through Jesus' death on the cross. And so again, we see that Peter's reply to Jesus, which was, Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Was characteristically impulsive, just like everything else. Peter had a tendency to do. He had a tendency to do first and think later, which would lead to some problems later on. As you see, he asked Jesus to also wash his hands and his feet. So let's pick up now in verse 10, and we're going to cover two verses. We're going to cover 10 and 11, which says, Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, even though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said, not everyone was clean. So what's going on here? So we see here that Jesus has changed the imagery a little bit, slightly, just a little, to make the point that God cleanses or bathes a person at conversion, or in other words, at the point that you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are cleaned, you are bathed, you are made clean. Your whole body has been washed. 
but as we live in this fallen world, we take up the world's dirt. So what is then, so what is not needed is another bath or another conversion, because that's already happened. It's a one and done thing. It's not something that happens over and over and over and over and over again. It happens one time, and it's in your set for life. You can't have another conversion experience. But what you need is another, is a cleaning of your feet, which is expressed by confessing sin for a clean conscience and maintaining close fellowship with the Lord. But again, we see Jesus talking about how one disciple was not clean because this one disciple was a traitor. And so now we're going to pick up in verse 12, and we're going to take it to the end of this first section of John chapter 13. So here is what that section says. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also shall wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent me. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Blessed if you do them. So what we see here is that Jesus went on to make a practical application, or to make a practical application from this foot washing. So if he, as there, as the disciples, Lord and teacher, washed their feet. They also should wash one another's feet. So what is Jesus saying there? If he, Jesus, who was Lord of all, Lord of everything, was willing to take the position, not just the position of a humble servant, but to do a humble servant's job for those that were beneath him. And we too should be willing to humbly serve those that are beneath us on society's level. So that means if you're in a position of leadership somewhere, whether it be in the secular world or whether it be in the church world, you have to take a position of, I am willing to serve those who are below me, because that is what Jesus' practical application is here. So again, we also say that Jesus compared himself to a master and his disciples to servants. So again, if he, Jesus, as the disciples of 
master willingly washed his servant's feet. So if he willingly reversed the roles, how much more should his disciples be willing to wash one another's feet? How much more should his disciples be willingly able to reverse roles just as Jesus did? Because remember, Jesus is the one that we're supposed to be emulating. He's the one we're supposed to be doing as he did. Not as the world says we should do. The world says if you're in a position of authority, you don't look, you don't humbly serve those who are beneath you. Those who are beneath you, what the world says, those that are beneath you are the ones that are supposed to be serving you and you're supposed to live fat and happy and dumb. Right? But Jesus says, no, 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 no. That's how the world views things. The world views things as you lorded over the people that you have been given authority over. But I say you don't lord it over the people that you have authority over. And the guy there is just not me. You don't lord it over the people you have authority over. You humbly serve them. You wash their feet. You do the things that are necessary to help them along. So we see that genuine blessing comes from obeying Jesus' teachings, not just hearing them. And so we will pick up tomorrow when we talk about how Jesus predicted his own betrayal and willingly forgave and willingly acknowledged that there was one person among his twelve disciples who was going to betray him. And so in order for you be to in order for you to be prepared to do that, you need to read first Kings chapter two, verse one through chapter three, verse two, Acts chapter five, Psalm one twenty five, one through five in Proverbs sixteen twenty five. Hello and welcome, my faithful and loyal readers and listeners. Welcome to our daily devotional for June the seventh. So if you recall daily devotional is divided into two different segments. It is divided into our first of the day segment, and it is divided into our through the Bible in one year segment. So our verse for today comes from Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27. And if you must know, these are some of my favorite verses. And they say, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep 
my laws. So what we see here is that God promised to restore Israel, not only physically, but to restore them spiritually. And to accomplish this, God will give them a new heart for following Him and put His Spirit within them to transform them and empower them to do His will. Right? So what is what 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 exactly is going on here? Right? So God is going to take out your stony, stubborn heart, and He's going to give you a tender and responsive heart. Why? Why is he going to do that? Because you see, there's a new covenant that has been promised, and that's ultimately going to be fulfilled in Christ. And so that's what we're talking about when it says, and I'll put my spirit in you, and move you to follow my decrees, and be careful to keep my laws. Because the only way you're going to ever be able to do that is if God removes your stony, stubborn heart, and gives you a tender and responsive heart, a heart that's going to be attuned to, listening to, and obeying, not just the promptings and the leanings of the Holy Spirit, but the commands of the Holy Spirit, the commands that God is going to put on your heart. So, for instance, if you're reading the Bible and God is giving you, and you're, and you're reading it, and all of a sudden you get Holy Spirit starts to convict you of you know, some sin you committed, right? If you if you're really and truly a follower of God, you'll be atoned to that and you'll know I gotta confess this sin right now. Otherwise I won't have otherwise I'll keep that stony stomach says, No, 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 that was just uh, bad pizza, that was just you know Something I ate didn't agree with me. That's just something playing with my mind. That's just um some mental trick. But when in reality it was the prompting of the Holy Spirit, and so when you do that, you keep that stony, stubborn heart that doesn't want to admit that there is a prompting and a leading from the Holy Spirit. But when you follow it, then your stony, stubborn heart is replaced with a tender and responsive heart. So what we should see here is that no matter how impure your life is right now, God offers you a fresh start. And again, He offers you that fresh start. I think He's going to take out that old stony, stubborn heart. And He's going to put a new and tender and responsive heart in place of it. God's going to do a heart transplant on you. So you can have your sins washed away, receive a new heart from God, and have His Spirit within you, if you simply accept God's promise. That is what God is promising here to Ezekiel. It's what God is promising here to those of us who choose to believe in Him, that we can have a new heart, but we've got to be willing to accept God's gift, because why would you try to patch up your old life? Why would you try to patch up this old, stony, and stubborn heart? 
just gonna deny, 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 and lead you down the road of destruction. When you can have a new life, when you can have a new heart, when you can have a heart that is tender and responsive to the call of God, that will make a difference in your life, and not only in your life, but in the lives of the people around you. And so our Bible readings for today are going to be First uh, Kings chapter 2, verse 1 to First Kings chapter 3, verse 2, Acts chapter 5, Psalm 125, verses 01 through 5, and Proverbs 16, 25. So that brings us to the conclusion of our first of the day segment for June the 7th. Now we are going to come to our Through the Bible in One Year segment for June the 7th. Again, if you have missed any of these segments, you can get caught up with them by visiting upstatechristian.com. That's upstatechristian.com. So yesterday we focused on the first 17 verses of John chapter 13. Now we're going to be concentrating on the next 12 verses, which will be John chapter 13 verses 18 through 30. So yesterday we saw in those first 17 verses, Jesus do what in the minds of his disciples was the unthinkable and unfathomable, unconscionable, whatever term you want to use to describe the act of washing their feet. That's what we saw yesterday. And today we're going to see the first of two predictions that Jesus makes in this chapter. And those two predictions are Judas's betrayal of Jesus and Peter's denial of Jesus because you see Jesus predicts that both of those things are gonna happen all within the same chapter and all within the same period of time. So right after Jesus has predicted that Judas is gonna betray him and Judas goes out to do that very same act and then come which we're going to cover tomorrow, come to Jesus' prediction that Peter is going to deny him before this day is over with. And it happens. And so today we're going to be dealing with Jesus' prediction that Judas would be betraying him. And tomorrow we'll be dealing with Jesus' prediction of Peter's denial. So let's get started. So we're going to start in chapter 13, verse 18, and we're going to take it down to verse 20 to start off with. So here's what it says. I am not returned, I'm not referring to all of you, excuse me. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it 
does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send, accepts me, whoever accepts me, accepts the, accepts the one who sent me. So what is going on here, right? So John, after describing Jesus' humility in the foot washing, then goes on to describe Jesus' foreshadowing of his betrayal. So we know that David was betrayed by a close friend. We see that in Psalm 41, verse 9. More than likely, this close friend that David was talking about was probably his son Absalom. It may have been someone else, but it's most likely can be. And so, as David was betrayed by a close friend, David's son, Jesus, who was a direct lineal descendant of David, would be betrayed by a friend also. So then, let's talk a little bit about this part where it says sharing the bread, right? So now we've t- talked about that, right? So we've talked about uh, um, where it says, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is filled with passage of scripture. <laughs> My bread has turned against me. Right. So let's talk about that phrase, sharing my bread. Right. So at this point in time, sharing bread with someone was a mark of friendship, which made the act of betrayal even more devious. So you see, Jesus told them these things so that their faith would be strengthened. When they look back on the events, they would know that he, Jesus, had not been caught off guard. So what are we talking about there? Now, Jesus concluded by showing the relationship of his mission to their mission. So where, what are we talking about there, right? So that's the part that says, I'm telling you now, before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send, accepts me, and whoever accepts me, accepts the one who sent me. So the reason Jesus predicted his betrayal and told it to his disciples was so that they would look back and say, Jesus wasn't caught off guard by this. Jesus knew that the people didn't like him. Jesus knew that there was someone within his close group of friends because he was intimate with the Father, because he and the Father were one. So because of that, we know that Jesus, because of that, we know now that Jesus is who he says he is. Because nobody else would have been able to predict that someone was going to betray him out of a close group of friends. And so I'm going to say that he concluded this by saying... Based on the relationship of his mission to their mission, that's what it means. So that we're talking about there at the, uh, the last verse, which is very truly, I tell you, 
Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. So basically what Jesus is saying there is if you accept the my disciples, if you accept those who are following me, then you have accepted me if you are listening to and attuned to their message, which was the message I gave them to give, then you are accepting me and you are accepting my message. And if you accept me and my message, then you are accepting the Father and His message, because the Father's message and Jesus' message are one in the same. So now let's move on. We're gonna go now through, um, you know, verse 21 through 27, which says, after he said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, we're going to talk about that for a little bit, a little bit, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to the disciple and said, Ask him, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, This is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him what you are about to do, do quickly. So we see that the thought of Judas's betrayal deeply grieved Jesus. Why would it have deeply grieved Jesus? Because Jesus had poured two years into Judas Iscariot. And how did Judas Iscariot repay the two years that Jesus had poured into him? Poured into him with his heart and with his soul. He betrayed him. Sold him out, as we're told in later gospels, for thir- as in the earlier gospels, for thirty pieces of silver. Judas was so greedy that he was willing to sell out the Son of God for money. He gave up what he knew to be true, because you couldn't have walked with. Jesus, while he was still on the earth for three years, and not come to the conclusion that this man was the promised 
Messiah. He was the one who was gonna come and right the wrongs. Perhaps maybe Judas was looking for a political Messiah. We don't know. Perhaps maybe Judas was looking for something different. We don't know. What we do know is that he agreed to betray him and that he agreed to betray Jesus for money. So we also see that Jesus had hidden this betrayal numerous times. He hidden it. He just said something's not kosher with all of you. Something ain't right with all of you. Now he has come out and plainly stated that there is one among you, my chosen few, who are going, who is going to betray me to the authorities. But it's going to be done so that everything God wants to happen can happen. So we also see the disciples were shocked and they had no idea which one of them it might be. So we see that Peter motioned to the disciple whom Jesus loved. So who was the disciple whom Jesus loved? That would be John. That is how John referred to himself throughout the Gospel of John. So just a little brief insight on John. John is also the author of not just the Gospel of John, he's also the author of First John, Second John, and Third John. And according to church history, he is the writer of the Book of Revelation. Even though most scholars now do not believe that John the Apostle, John the Disciple of Jesus, wrote the Revelation of John, because the writing styles of the Gospel of John and the three epistles, 1st John, 2nd John, and 3rd John, are so different that it would make absolutely no sense for John the Apostle to have written the book of Revelation. And that's just a side note there. So you see that Jesus, uh, Peter mentioned, motioned to the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, to ask Jesus the identity of the traitor. Peter wants to know. Why does Peter want to know? A couple of reasons. Number one, maybe Peter wanted to go ahead and take out this problem. Because you got to remember, Peter was bold, Peter was brash, and Peter was irresponsible at this point in time. So it was entirely likely Peter wanted to know so that he could take care of this problem, because nothing was going to threaten his Lord and Master. And the second reason is that Peter was just curious. Peter was curious. Who would dare, after having walked with Jesus, dare to betray him? Because, quite possibly, Peter wanted to spread it around to everybody else. Hey, hey, look, 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 look. This dude's done walk with Jesus for three years. And now all of a sudden, he sold him out for money. Can you believe?
Imagine that. Judas wanted to pick over Jesus for three years and decided he was going to sell him out for money. And now all of a sudden, Peter wants to know who is it that's going to betray you? Who is it that's going to turn you in? Who is it that's going to hand you over to the religious authorities so they can do heaven knows what to you? Because they've already said they want to kill you. Chances are, if you get turned over to them, they is going to kill you. So it seems that Jesus responded with an action instead of a verbal identification. So what is that that we're talking about here, right? So Jesus did not give Peter a name. What he did say was, uh, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. And Jesus sent the one that I extend the hand of friendship to. The one that I have extended the hand of friendship to for the past three years is going to be the one who will betray me will sell me out, who will abandon everything they have been taught, everything they know, so that they can make a monetary, a financial gain out of this. So we see that John's use of Judas's full name, so he doesn't just say Judas Iscariot, he says Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So he used his full name to bring a certain amount of sobriety, a certain amount of seriousness to this moment. And what happens after Judas, Judas takes this piece of bread that Satan enters into him. Because you see, Satan hadn't entered into Judas just yet. Right. Now, as soon as Jesus passed the bread to Judas, and Judas took that piece of bread and Judas ate that piece of bread, Satan came inside Judas. Satan took over Judas. And we see that Jesus, aware of what is happening, instructed Judas to act immediately. So what are we talking about? That that's how this section ends, where it says, So Jesus told him, What you are about to do, do quickly. So that brings us to the last three verses of this section. In John chapter 13, which would be verse 28 through 30, which says no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him, since Judas, uh, this is the key part here, since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival, or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. You see, no one seemed concerned when Judas departed. 
Why? Why was no one concerned when Judas was departed? Judas departed because they knew Judas was a follower. They knew that Judas was part of the inner circle. No one ever thought that a member of the inner circle would betray Jesus. They literally thought that hey, he's just gone out to to buy something for the festival. He's gone out to do something that Jesus asked him to do. So, the words they likely thought that Judas was taking care of matters related to the week-long festivities. Since he was the treasurer of this group, it would only make sense that he'd be the one to go out and take care of the things that needed to be taken care of related to the week-long festivities that, that were coming, starting to come to a close. But you still had two or three more days of festivities during Passover. So, you know, Judas might have been going out to buy more bread. He might have been going out to buy more supplies. We don't know exactly what <laughs> what they thought. But we do know that they didn't think Judas was going off to betray Jesus. So what we see here is the significance of Judas's taking of this piece of bread. It's seen in the fact that John mentions it again. What do you mean he mentions it again? As it says at the very end, as Judas had taken the bread. Oh, excuse me, as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. You see, the mention that it was night may have been a may have may have symbolic significance because you see, since the Passover meal was eaten at night, there was really no need to mention it chronologically. The only reason for John to mention it was that it had held some sort of symbolism, right? And but theology, theologically, it means that the plan was being put into motion that would cultivate with the death of the Son of God. Because you see, the reason why John describes it as being night is by saying it was night. And that because when Judas ate that piece of bread that Jesus gave him, then Satan came inside of him and pushed Judas to betray Jesus. Right. We're seeing the contrast between light and darkness. We say that the kingdom of darkness is now at work. Right. The the ultimate theme that we're seeing going on here is throughout the Gospel of John is that there's a kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of light. And it would appear now that the kingdom of darkness is at hand because it says this is night. What we do know is that this was the darkest night the world has ever known. Why? Because what we see <coughs> after Judas goes and betrays Jesus, to the religious leaders which we, we see Jesus tried illegally before the Jewish High Council. 
events that we see in chapter 13 that's still taking place in the upper room. All of this is taking place in the upper room. All of this is taking place on the Thursday night before Jesus was crucified. You got a very bad in mind. All of this is taking place at the same point in time that Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about the Lord's Supper being instituted. And that's where we're going to pick up tomorrow. As you see, we're not going to see the Lord's Supper mentioned at all here. We're not going to see the Last Supper mentioned at all here. What we're going to see mentioned here is Jesus' prediction of Peter's denial. And Jesus giving one of his last commands to his disciples and in order for you to be prepared to discuss that you need to read first kings chapter 3 verse 3 through chapter 4 verse 34 acts chapter 6 psalm 126 1 through 6 and proverbs 16 26 